Well, today's message as we continue in our series about the seven churches in Revelation. This is our sixth one. And today's message is titled very simply, The Curse of Moderate Christianity. So let me start by asking this question. Uh, are you a moderate? Are you a moderate? You know, not many people would say yes to that question. You know, when it comes to politics, for example, the moderate uh, has almost become an extinct species. Uh, you are either conservative or you are liberal, or perhaps you might actually be a libertarian, but you're probably not a moderate. I, I'm waiting for some candidate to run for president or governor of Missouri or wherever who has an advertisement that says, vote for me, I'm a moderate. I don't think I'm going to see that in my lifetime. But maybe I should ask the question this way. Are you a moderate Christian? Are you a moderate Christian? Well, the moderate Christian has a moderate Jesus who makes moderate uh, demands. He keeps Jesus kind of like at arm's length uh, so that this religious stuff doesn't get too close to him and overpower him and get out of hand. But that's exactly what happened at this place called Laodicea. Now, I'm going to tell you, as you look at the map, we're taking this slightly out of order. Some of you have been following along. You say, well, hold it. This is the sixth message, but you're dealing with the seventh church. You're right. That's because I want to save the best for last. So next week, we're going to take a look at Philadelphia. Now, as you look at that map of the seven churches... None receives a more scathing condemnation than Laodicea. Uh, they're located about 90 miles uh, east of Ephesus. You can see where Ephesus is up, up in there, I think. And about 45 miles south of a really good place called Philadelphia, which you all know means the city of brotherly love. Now, Laodicea was a very prosperous town uh, known for its mineral springs. Uh, they used a system of aqueducts. Uh, and they piped in water that was hot when it came bubbling up out of the ground, but it was lukewarm by the time it arrived in Laodicea. Now, outwardly, this church appeared to be very strong, very prosperous. Uh, clearly, the people who were worshiping there uh, considered themselves to be happy, clappy, and blessed. Uh, they lived in a town that other people envied. And it seems this church drew some of its members from some pretty wealthy people in that community. Now, unlike Smyrna, you remember that town, there seems to have been no persecution. And unlike Pergamum, there was really no sign of false doctrine. And we don't find anything of the immorality of Jezebel and her uh, merry band in uh, Thyatira. Laodicea, if you will... Uh, I was tempted to say it's maybe a lot like Branson in some ways. It's, it's a very comfortable place to live, and it's a relatively comfortable place to go to church. And that combination of comfortability made Jesus sick to his stomach. And he had a word for them. Now, this is what we're going to learn about his word. Here's the very first thing we're going to learn. His word is true. Verse 14, the first half, it says, These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness. Now, amen is uh, usually the final word of a prayer. That's how we ended up. Uh, it, it means, though, a whole lot more than I'm finished or let's eat. Uh, it's a kind of a sign of agreement. Now, rather than end our prayer today by saying amen, we should say, and yeah, we all agree what we just prayed. 
Uh, that would be a great way to end the Lord's Prayer, but it might freak out some people. Like, oh my gosh, they changed the Lord's Prayer on us. No. When I preach in prison, and I'll tell you, quite honestly, when I preach overseas in some places, it is not uncommon for somebody in the congregation to shout out, Amen, brother. And really all they're saying is, I agree with the preacher. Uh, what he said is true. And so here Jesus calls himself the Amen. He's the, uh, he's the last word. Now, he's the last word in what? Well, he's the last word in human history. He's the last word in your personal life. He's the last word in my life. Uh, not cancer, not divorce, not bankruptcy, not death, not hell. It's Jesus who has the last word. So Jesus is alone. He's it. He's the final amen to all that God has said because it says he is the true and faithful witness. So we can trust him absolutely, 100%. Now, what he says is true because all he says is true. Always. Now, for Laodicea, it means that when Jesus issues this scathing denunciation here in chapter 3, they cannot escape by saying, well, that's just his opinion. No, that's the word of the Son of God, who's faithful and true in all that he says. Now, I can't claim to speak infallible truths from up here in front. But when Jesus speaks, the church needs to listen. Now, here's the second thing about his word. His word is authoritative. The second part of verse 14 is, these are the words of the ruler of God's creation. Now, some people say, well, God created the world. I don't think Jesus was there. Well, read John chapter 1. You can figure that out. You'll see the uh, hyperlink, the connection to the biblical narrative there. It just means that all of creation comes from the hand, his hand. He was there at the beginning. He was there even before the beginning. Uh, The whole universe owes its uh, existence to the mighty power of Jesus. Uh, He's sovereign over every bird that flies, over every fish that swims, and every little rabbit that goes hop, hop, hopping down the bunny trail. So not only is he a sovereign God, he's also the glue. Imagine if Jesus were to take his hand off this planet, it would it would explode, or possibly implode, or maybe do both at the same time if that's possible. Uh, If he stopped holding it together. Oh, man, we'd be in deep weeds. That's one way of putting it. Uh, We owe everything to him. Uh, When he speaks, his words are true and absolutely authoritative. And this leads us to the second thing in this reading. It's his indictment. And the first thing in his indictment is this. You are indifferent. Now, it's kind of an interesting or dangerous thing to think. We're looking at Laodicea, and they're a bunch of evil, wicked, bad, nasty sinners Unlike us, who are really pretty good. But I want to suggest to you this morning that we can find ourselves in these words as well, if we are truly honest. Have we ever been indifferent to Jesus? Well, verses 15 and 16 says, I know your deeds. Guess what? God knows yours. He knows mine. I know sometimes when you are neither what? Cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold... I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I can almost remember back in high school when reading these words for the very first time, I kind of puzzled over the meanings of those words. 
I wondered why Jesus said, I wish you were either hot or cold. And I thought about that for a while, but then a, a thought came to me. What's another word for lukewarm water? Well, room temperature. What do you need to do to make water room temperature? Nothing. Nothing. Suppose you want hot water. You got to do something. You put it on the stove or you put it in the microwave or you run it through a hot water heater. Hot water never becomes hot on its own. And what about cold water? You got to do something. If you want lukewarm to be cold, you got to put an ice cube in it. Or uh, under normal circumstances, water will never become cold if it's left to itself. So this is the indictment that's here in God's word today. The Laodiceans were not guilty of some intentional sin, such as sleeping around. We've talked about that in some of these other churches. Or promoting false doctrine, like having Jezebel in the pulpit. Or welcoming false prophets, also like Jezebel. And in order to be guilty of, of those things, you've got to do something. So how do you become lukewarm? Well, just don't do anything. And that's what you're going to become. A lukewarm Christian is nothing more than a room temperature Christian. Now, rather than changing the world, what do they do? Well, I think we see this in our society today. They kind of slowly allow the world to change them. Personally, I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm appalled sometimes when I hear pastors from pulpits of other churches buy into all of this alphabet nonsense uh, to approve of things like abortion. And I'm thinking the temperature in the room is just slowly but surely going from hot down to maybe non-existent. See, um, maybe they're kind of happy about it because they can have um, peace. Nobody's going to bother them if they kind of agree with the rest of the world. It's like that old statement about you you go along to get along. Uh, and that's the very definition of moderate Christianity. So when why does Jesus hate this lukewarmness so much? Well, it's mostly because a person in this condition doesn't really know it. You don't know that you're lukewarm. They kind of, you kind of slip into a a state of such total indifference that they don't care about their own spiritual condition. Nothing matters to them. And after all, by definition, room temperature is comfortable. You fit in. Now, they are the same as everybody else around them. Uh, not too hot, not too cold. And such a person is unreachable unless you shock them by saying, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And my friends, that would get your attention. See, nothing like this was said to the compromising church at Pergamum. Nothing like this was said to this, the, the morally corrupt church at Thyatira. And in some ways, those two churches, as bad as they were, are more reachable than the comfortable Laodiceans. At least they could see the error of their way because what they were doing was pretty definite, it's pretty clear. But not so with lukewarmness. Now, again, as I, I go through these scriptures and keep reading them over and over again and read different commentators, the apostolic <laughs> uh, words and stuff like that, it occurred to me that this sin is especially likely 
among long-time Christians. After all, once you've been in church a few years, guess what? You pretty much know the ropes. I mean, you know how the system works. You know how Restore operates or praise and worship or wherever you've been going before. Uh, you kind of know the church lingo. Um, you know where to sit. We got the bow row. We got the lulap. Uh, you know, you kind of know where you're going to sit in church. Uh, you know how to get along in worship. You just follow what the pastor says, or you we read this and you read that and blah blah blah. And you kind of know how church actually works. Uh, and what once seemed kind of new and exciting can be, if you allow it, pretty boring. It can become old hat. And I'm going to be really honest with you. Uh, your pastor is as prone to lukewarmness as anyone. I will acknowledge that. I have been a Christ follower for 78 years, going on 79. I've been a Christian so long that it is sometimes pretty easy to take that relationship with Jesus all for granted. What amazes me, or what amazes new believers, sometimes doesn't amaze me at all. That's why I pray regularly, Lord, show me the truth about myself. You know, that's that man in the mirror. Uh, Scrape away the, the, the plaque of my life. Uh, and the indifference that blocks the work of your Holy Spirit is I'm allowed to preach to other people. And um, otherwise, Lord, if I don't acknowledge you, I don't want you to spit me out of your mouth. That's pretty straightforward. But here's the second thing. He says, you're also, you're arrogant. You ever been called arrogant? Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. I mean, Jesus here reveals the heart of the problem is what? It's the problem of the heart. And until the heart is changed, nothing can change. It says there, you say, you say, I'm rich, I'm clothed, I can see. See, arrogance has blinded this church to the point, uh, and many others, to this true spiritual position. And guess what? Money has a way of doing that to people. For example, for example, what happens when I do this? All eyes are on the money in my hand. I could be talking for the next 30 minutes and you will do nothing but follow the money. And guess what? It happens all the time. Some of you are wondering, where does he get that much money? Are they, what are we paying him? I wish I had some of that money. Man, Ash, imagine what you could do with this money. You're, you're, you're thinking about it. You, he, he's not even thinking about the sermon anymore. He's thinking video games. That's what he's doing. See, money is almost hypnotic. You love money because with money, what can you do? Well, you can buy whatever you want within reason. That's why I'm going to put the money back in my pocket so you're going to listen to the rest of the message. See, money does crazy things to us. Even to really nice little Christ followers. We think we're doing better than we really are because money tends to 
insulate us against the pain of this world. We, we think we must be doing something right if we've got money. Well, let's be clear, friends. Uh, money is not the problem. I mean, uh, the money I just held up, it's nothing but like a bunch of paper printed in green and black ink. So it's not the money. It's the, you know the next word, the love of money. Now, I don't doubt that the Laodicean church was doing well compared to the other six churches we've talked about thus far. But the thing that gave them prosperity also brought disease to their souls. The worst of it was they thought they were doing just fine. We're okie dokie. See, in our day, and I'm not casting any aspersions on any particular church, but in our day, uh, it could be a big church with a really big, nice building. It has a, a super-duper parking lot. It's got a big staff. It's got a, a big budget. It's got a lot of uh, great programs and a great reputation. Now, I, I want you to know there's nothing wrong with that. I'm saying that because I pastored two or three churches exactly like that. But this passage ought to remind us that a, quote, successful church is not always a church that God approves of. So this is why Jesus offers an invitation at the end of this reading. So here's the very first thing about his invitation. He says, wake up. It's a good call. To, you know, we shouldn't have an invocation. We just need a wake-up call. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love, I love, rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Now, I, I, I want to unwrap this verse a little bit for you because there's, there's something uh, where it ties into this city here. Laodicea was known as a city of banking. There's that little phrase, what the gold that's refined in the fire. It was a place that was known for beautiful garments made of wool. That's the white clothes to wear in that text. They also were a place where they made eye salve. And that's why he said salve to put on your eyes. So he's, he's zeroing in on these guys. Jesus is touching the very points of their civic pride to reveal their spiritual poverty. Now I'm struck here by the personal nature of Jesus. If, someone's, if someone came up to you and said, you make me want to vomit, um, I'd hardly expect them to follow up and say, but I love you more than you know. <laughs> That'd be a strange combination. You make me want to puke, but I really love you. But when you love somebody, guess what? I think you, you, you hate what's destroying them. And you, you love them all the more. And if you're a parent, you've been that route. If you see your kids, and we raised two of them. We helped raise a grandson. Uh, there are times you can see them on a path of, Destruction may seem like a, a, a tough word, uh, but you don't stand by. Sometimes you, had, sometimes you ratchet the prayers up more. Sometimes you have more conversations. You have more visits. Um, you, know, you say things even if you know that your kids are going to get angry. That's the same way with the Lord with us. Same way. He loves us so much that he, he won't let us stay the way we are. See, the way forward is to wake up and admit you have a need. That's why we talk about words of brokenness. We are broken people. And until we do that, we can't ever get better. 
Here's the second thing he says. He says, open up. Verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, this, this appeal becomes extremely personal here um, as Jesus turns from the church as a whole to the individuals that are in this particular church. And I find great encouragement in this. See, though, uh, what other people may ignore Jesus. And I come across a certain number of people uh, pretty regularly who don't really know Jesus, or if they do know him, they really don't want him to get too close to them. They may ignore him, but I know that I can still open the door. Uh, Your spouse or your friends or even your church could have no use for Jesus, but you can open the door. And not only does Jesus uh, wait to come in, uh, he wants to dine with you. I don't know if you ever thought about that. How Jesus actually wants to dine with you. There's no better picture, I think, for the Christian life than this. You stop and think about it. It's not like Jesus taking you out to Chick-fil-A. It's not just out for fast food. Uh, Jesus wants to have a good, long meal with you, uh, with a lingering conversation by a crackling fire or, uh, in these days, air conditioning. And I think it's just kind of amazing that the worst church in this whole group of seven gets the best invitation. But then again, isn't that just like Jesus? After exposing their indifference, he offers them himself. I don't know if you ever played this game. Has anybody ever asked you, like, if you could have dinner with any three people from history, who would you choose? Well, you're supposed to say, well, Billy Graham, Elvis, and uh, Roy Orbison. (laughs) But here there's only one answer. It's just the two of you, you and Jesus, talking things over while you share a meal together. I'd like a meal like that. And guess what? We're going to have a meal like that today. It's between you and Jesus. Now, let's talk about the third thing. He says, spend time with me. It comes to a grand conclusion here. He says in verses 21 and 22, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, growing up, I grew up in a little town called Seward, Nebraska. I was raised by my grandparents, as many of you know. And I used to help my grandpa, whose job was to be the custodian for the church, the school, and the parish hall. Uh, and uh, I would help him cleaning. And one of the things I always enjoyed doing was going to help at the church because after what I loved the sound vacuum cleaner made when it, it sucked up rice. And uh, I used to change the numbers up on the hymn boards. But then I would sit in, in this church. We had beautiful stained glass windows. There were three on each side in the worship center. And one of them, and you'll see a picture here on the screen, I think. Right there it is. Um, One of these was a recreation of this famous painting by a guy by the name of Holman Hunt uh, in which Jesus stands at the door of an old English cottage in Knox. And all of this, I studied this painting for years and years and years. And I even asked my grandpa one time, why doesn't Jesus just open the door and go in? And some of you know the reason, because there's no doorknob on the outside of that door. The door needs to be open from where? From within. 
So it is for Jesus who continually says to each and every one of us, I want to spend time with you. And then he waits for our response. He comes, he knocks, and then he waits for us to open the door. And for those who open the door, guess what? Jesus comes in and he makes himself at home. And I find great hope and great comfort and for every Christ follower who, who feels far from the Lord. And I would, I would guess if we went around the room today and say, okay, if, these, if all of you are Christ followers today, was there ever a time when you felt far from the Lord? I think in all honesty, we've all been there. But Jesus says, even in the times when you feel far apart, I want you in my life. I want to come into your life. And in a, in a sense, this final uh, invitation speaks to all seven of the churches that we're going to be looking at and to all Christ followers everywhere the whole time. So, friends, I'm just saying today, not only to myself, but to you, uh, don't let your sins keep the door shut. Uh, don't let your failures keep the door shut. Uh, Jesus came for sinners. And as I look around the room today, I don't see anything but sinners, dot, 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 saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you're looking up here, don't say, oh, what a wonderful pastor we have. He's a man, he's the head sinner at our church. Well, hopefully I'm, well, I guess I'm on the front row one. Uh, but it's sinners who need a Savior. And guess what? It's the same thing for all the foolish, for all the fallen, for all the messed up, for all the mixed up, uh, for all the worn out, for all of the discouraged, for all of the backslidden, for all of the uh, compromised or the downtrodden people or uh, the unlovely um, church people who wish and dream and secretly hope that they can get a brand new start somewhere, someplace. Here's the good news for the day. Jesus has come for you. He's come for every last single one of you. He stands at the door and he knocks. The question is, will you let him in? Now, I got good news for you. To those who answer yes, he comes in and makes himself at home and then he makes all things brand new. See, if we welcome him now, Someday he's going to welcome us forever. Honestly, I can't think of a better deal. And the best way to end a sermon like today is this. He that has ears to hear, let him hear.